the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. We're here to support your company and your employees now and in the future. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Good day and welcome to the Irish Times business podcast. I'm Arthur Beasley. In the hot seat this week is Pascal Donoghue, Fine Gael TD for Dublin Central and arguably the biggest winner in the post-election cabinet shuffle when he became Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform. Now, the economy is growing, so the public finances are in better shape than for years. But spending pressure is mounting. Pascal Donoghue, you're very welcome to the studio. Thank you, Arthur. Times. Will you be holding the line against such spending pressures or will you be the Minister for Public Expenditure who capitulates? Well, there's, uh, there's only one answer to that question, Arthur. It's yeah. a pretty binary yeah. question that you're putting to me. Yeah. Uh, but even if the alternative wasn't so bleak in terms of the mm. other option that you're outlining there, um, I'm very clear that I want to ensure that the progress that we have made in our national finances is maintained. The government has a commitment that by 2017, we want to ensure that our budget deficit is eliminated, that our country gets to a point where its books are balanced. And I also want to see through achieving that deficit improvement, we get ourselves to a point where our debt as a percentage of our national income begins to more rapidly decrease than it otherwise would. Because one of the things I've learned uh, after the awful period that our country has gone through is that when you're in a position that you can't pay for out of your tax revenue the services that a country wants, you end up in a position where you're vulnerable. We are making progress. We need to complete that journey. And I have a crucial role to play now, which I'm privileged to do, in making sure that public expenditure um, and the control of public expenditure and the sustainable management of it makes a really big contribution to that. Now, it's uh, very difficult for me to dispute your bona fides when you say all of that. And in many ways, that's the answer that that would be expected. And yet, we did have a very long post-election negotiation, which culminated in the agreement, which is there now. But if you're to read through the Programme for Government, a document with which you are intimately familiar, I am sure, we see a litany of spending promises there, almost all of them uncosted. Yeah, and it's our expectation that the cumulative cost of uh, all of those spending commitments is around 6.7 to 6.8 billion euro worth of expenditure. Um, we, uh, From the work that we have done and the work that was published in the run-up to the election, we have a fiscal space that is bigger than that. And clearly now when we get into the run-up of the summer economic statement, which will be when we will update the Oireachtas next week regarding our evaluation of where the economy is going, and the figures that will be available to the uh, government to work on, uh, we will make sure that those spending commitments are not at the expense of the progress that we have made in stabilising our national finances. And the government and myself as Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform will ensure that that happens. But, I mean, in the uh, when you look at the totality of the document, there are promises on, it seems to me, to be promises on this, that and everything. Yeah, but it'd be, it'd be fair to say as well, though, Arthur, that this is a text that reflects the new politics that we're in. I mean, I hear again and again, and I've heard for so long now, uh, calls for new politics, not least originating from this building that I'm delighted to be in here today. And a consequence of the new politics that we're in is the agreement for the uh, new programme for government that needed to be more inclusive. We had to reach into dealing with many different independents who had their own views regarding um, what they wanted. And because of that, the... Uh, a programme for government had to have more breadth. I welcome that breadth. 
It had to address issues like where we are with rural and provincial Ireland. It had to address issues with vulnerability that's in our country as a consequence of the economic trauma that we have gone through. And we have a wider document as a result of this. But one of the reasons why I was uh, worked so hard in the last government is I wanted to see our country get to a point where economic growth could address the social needs that we have. And one of the main commitments of this government is that we want to do that now. And the programme for government reflects that, Arthur. Go back to the new politics. It's all, we know the fragmentation in the, in the Dáil landscape. We know the government's dependence on support from Fianna Fáil. All of that is clear. But within that new politics, do you believe that politicians on the other side are seized of the magnitude of the fiscal challenge, which is still before the state, and the challenge which remains as a result of the crash and all that follows. Yeah, and I just want to pick up on a very correct phrase you used there a moment ago. The fiscal challenges have not gone away. Economic growth cannot be taken for granted. The last time those things were assumed, it got us on the path to nearly economic ruin. And a comment that I always make when, for example, we're talking about the so-called fiscal space is the fiscal space is a consequence of the economy growing. And you can't assume that growth and you can't take it for given. And one of the things we'll have to do is look at what is available to government to make sure that that growth is maintained. In terms of the atmosphere across the entire Dáil Chamber, which you're asking me about, I suppose time will tell. One of the things, though, I'm very clear on is if we end up with the old attitudes with the new arrangements in the Dáil, we're going to end up with bad budgets and bad laws. And there's a shared responsibility on everybody in the Iraq this now to make play their part in making sure that doesn't happen. Now, all of that is clear. But when you look, I mean, there is a document on your own website, which is the briefing note to the incoming minister, which I'm sure you have read. And in that document, it points to spending pressures around public service pay, public service pensions, state pensions, HSE expenditure, the long-term unemployed, schools expenditure, higher education financing, social housing, Irish water, water charges, climate change, broadband, the justice group expenditure and capital investment generally. So, I mean, it seems to me that there is an extraordinary amount of pressure which is going to be brought to bear on you as you sit down. Yes, and I will deal with that and I will work within the Iraqis and government to reconcile all of that. Of course, Arthur, um, and the rest of the document uh, will acknowledge now that we now have a degree of economic growth that five years ago looked unthinkable. We are a country now that is spending approximately 55 billion euro per year on our public services. Uh, this week alone, we announced the ability to hire an additional 800 SNAs. Um, uh, but of course, there are pressures. There are conflicting priorities within our country regarding how we spend additional money that might be available. And I think that is going to impact on the kind of politics that we have. Because if we do end up with a kind of politics in the coming years that looks to do um, the minimum by each group within our entire society, then I think we're going to end up in a place where the leadership that the country requires and the sense of direction that the country requires, we won't be able to deliver that. And one of the things that will be important in the summer economic statement and then run up to the budget in October 2017 is that this government and then the Doyle spells out what do we believe the key strategic priorities are? What do we believe the main policy areas are? And what do we want our economy to look like in five years' time? And a big 
point in all of that will be when we get to a point later on in this year in which we have two million people at work. I remember being in meetings a number of years ago when we were having discussions about what are we going to do when half a million people are unemployed in our country. We're now moving in the other direction. We need to keep that going. Now, you were a you started off in the the last government as a uh, as a backbench TD. You then became Minister of State for Europe. You then became Minister for Transport. That was a government which was imbued with a certain sense of mission. It couldn't have been any otherwise, given the the magnitude of the, the of of the challenge. But you must acknowledge that in a time when the crisis largely is behind us, at least in the domestic setting, that there is a greater challenge to. Uh, to uh, to pr- persuade the people and to persuade other politicians that a challenge still remains? Uh, the challenge still remains. It has not gone away. We face different kind of challenges now. One of the great gifts that we have as a country, for example, is our demography. We have the um, youngest uh, number of people as a percentage of our total population of any country in the European Union. We have the second highest birth rate of any country in the European Union. And that has a huge effect on the ability of our country to grow in the future. But then it creates the very kind of spending pressures that you are quizzing me on. In terms of how we manage all of that, Arthur, I think what again is very important is that we spell out to the entire country what we believe the main priorities are. And every time we have to explain to the Iraqis and indeed our country why we cannot do something, we have to explain it in the context of what we are actually able to do. And that is why the run-up to this year's budget is going to be so important. The uh, we, we are we are talking here uh, one week after the Fiscal Advisory Council, which is a statutory body set up to monitor budgetary po- policy, uh, delivered its latest assessment, in which it essentially made three criticisms of current policy. In the first instance, the Fiscal Council said there is a danger that the government might breach the very domestic and European fiscal rules it said it was going to uphold only weeks ago. In the second instance, it said there may be a necessity in the coming budget, which is now only months away, and we're going into a period in which preparations are afoot for that budget, that there might be a necessity to pull back from some of the foreseen measures on spending on taxation due to the possibility of economic overheating. And in the third instance, they suggested that the figures of the government looking ahead for five years may be out by as much as six billion because those figures are not taking in the very demographic pressures you have cited. Now, I know that people in Merrion Street dispute very strongly the assertion that the six billion figure, that the figures might be out by six billion. But what of the that first promise made by the government, that amid all of those spending promises in the programme for government, there was a pledge to abide by the letter of the fiscal rules. And here you have a statutory body saying, look, those rules might be broken. Arthur, did that report say anything good about the government? I think it said that, it growth, that there was economic growth. Yes. And so, again, we go back to the earlier question that you put to mm. me. Of course, let's acknowledge the uh, uh, observations that that report had. And I welcome you doing that. And I'll debate that with you now in a moment. But can we also acknowledge other things that were in the report? Can we also acknowledge that the report uh, pointed out to the deficit improvement that has happened, that the report pointed out that we have a degree of growth within our country that's now enabling us to respond back to the many challenges that our country has? And it's in the spirit of acknowledging that within that report there were uh, many elements of it that pointed to the progress that we have made that, of course, are deal with the observations that the report has made 
regarding um, what we need to be aware of as we frame this budget. And I want to emphasise what I said to you earlier on. We will honour the commitments that we have under the European fiscal rules. But the reason why I'm being so uh, clear with you in relation to that isn't just because these are legal obligations that we have to meet. It's because the cost of not meeting those commitments in the future are real and are real to the people that I'm privileged to represent. Because when you get to a point that your national finances are unsustainable, that your national finances move to a point where they're out of control, that hurts people. The hurt is real. I don't want that to happen again. And I will make sure that in my job as Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, and the reform bit is as, part, is as important as the expenditure part, we will make sure that doesn't happen. But again, of course, you, you know, you, I think it's also important to acknowledge that I'm a member of a party that in the last term of office met every single commitment that we had in relation to deficit targets. Well, that, that raises the question as to whether that commitment to honour the rules will be met even if it means having to uh, exercise a little bit less fiscal space than would have been foreseen. And look, that's a fair point that, you know, it's a, 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 a choices that we will have to face is how do we make sure that the fiscal rules that we have, and as I said a moment ago, we want to meet them, not just because they're rules, that we do meet them while reconciling the pressures that you have correctly identified earlier on. But, you know, you were um, uh, quizzing me in a correct manner earlier on in relation to the programme for government. But, of course, the same programme for government has the commitment in us to honour the fiscal rules. So the fiscal rules will be honoured even if it means having to cut back a little bit on the fiscal space. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm confident that as we frame the next budget, we'll be able to make the right choices to make sure that we deliver against our fiscal rules obligations. I'm not going to comment at this stage regarding what the size of the fiscal space could be or how we could allocate it, because we're going to have an announcement in the Doyle about that next week. Um, there, there is another question raised, and I've already mentioned it, in respect of the Fiscal Council report last week. And it said, look, there might be a need to hold back a little at the end of this year, running into the budget for 2017, because there's a danger of economic overheating. What's your assessment on that? Well, while we have um, continued to have so many people unemployed um, and a need to deal in particular with our long-term unemployed, uh, because recent reports have pointed to that as the total stock of people who are unemployed, as that begins to decrease the share of people who are now long-term unemployed are occupying a higher share of who are now unemployed in our country. So while I see that in place, and while I also see, and this was a very important observation from the Fiscal Council, and indeed from the Commission recently, that we have significant capital expenditure infrastructural gaps, and this is something you correctly commented on recently too, while we have those things in place, I'll continue to argue that there is a positive role for government spending and that it can play a mildly stimulus role in making sure that we deal with those matters. I'd also feel that the uncertainty regarding what's happening abroad at the moment, which will crystallise one way or another in the coming weeks, creates an effect in our domestic economy that we need to be aware of. But in terms of your direct question overall, I mean, we, we won't make do anything at all that will create the risk that the repeats, the mistakes of the past are repeated. 
in terms of overheating an economy that be at full capacity. But because of the fact that we still have a, such a level of unemployment and because of the fact that we still have such significant infrastructural gaps in housing, in parts of public transport, in what we need to do with a broadband, I don't believe the economy is at that point at the moment. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always-on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. You mentioned the international setting. Now, the big issue there is the Brexit referendum tomorrow week in Britain. Do you foresee, uh, who knows what, what the result Indeed. will be, but do you foresee that your gov- the government you serve in will have to change its budgetary and fiscal plans if it is indeed that the British people decide to leave the EU? Well, in the most recent national risk assessment from the government, we did say that a Brexit and the huge uncertainty that that would trigger would have an effect on the economy back here at home. So it would have an effect um, in terms of our expectations regarding our national finances and economic growth. It's very difficult for me at this stage to quantify that. And that's because of a word I deliberately used, which is uncertainty. And just to give one example of it, which you'll be familiar with, Arthur, if the United Kingdom exercises its sovereign right to leave the European Union, there'll be a two-year window in which the negotiation in relation to all of that will need to ensue and probably be completed. The effect of that and things that we currently take for granted will be huge. But it's difficult to quantify at this point, apart from the fact that it being clear that it would be negative. Of course, that that then will then have an effect on our economy here at home. And you'll be very familiar, uh, Arthur, with a phrase that economists like to use regarding transmission mechanisms and the idea that a decision of some kind has a direct effect into the economy that you're looking to manage and lead. And Brexit and the consequence of that for the Irish economy are a clear example of that. But for the avoidance of any doubt, is it the case that if there is a vote to leave tomorrow week, that the government will have to immediately reappraise the plan that is coming together already for 2017, for the next budget to be delivered in October? Look, if I was to give a direct answer to that, I think I'd be concerned that it would begin to have an effect, you know, you know play a role in a campaign that's underway in the UK at the moment. So what I will say is I uh, do... Uh, strongly believe that were a a negative vote, in other words, a leave vote to happen in the United Kingdom, that it would have a medium term effect, at least, on our economic prospects. And that medium term effect would be bad. That therefore would have an effect on our forecast for the economy in the coming years. And that's the very, very reason that you've had members of the Irish government over in the United Kingdom speaking to the Irish communities, which I've done, asking them them to vote to remain. When you speak of forecasts for the coming years, included in that broad uh, rubric, if you like, is the forecast for the amount of fiscal space which may be available. But the fiscal space is a consequence of how the economy is growing and how you manage your national finances. 
so if there were to be a change in the rate of economic growth, uh, it would likely have an impact on the fiscal space. Uh, but uh, look, I used the phrase earlier and carefully earlier on about uncertainty. So it will have an effect, but we're not at this stage going to get into calibrating an effect that of a decision that we are hoping and campaigning for not happening. So the Irish government will play its role now across the remaining week in asking the Irish community to vote to remain. And for example, the Taoiseach will be travelling over to the UK now in the coming days to do that. Very good. Now, we, uh, we, we've been through the, the, the fiscal rules and the, and the commitment of the government to uphold the fiscal rules. However, there, there are stories in the newspapers today about Jerome Dieselbloom, who is the president of the Eurozone finance ministers and also finance minister of the Netherlands. And in it, he decries a tendency seen by the authorities in Brussels to grant dispensations to large member states when they break the rules, i.e. France, and he says that this is creating frustrations amongst other member states who have done their very best to abide abide by those very rules. Do you share his frustration? Look, uh, the comments of the chair of the uh, Eurogroup of Finance Ministers in relation to other countries is a matter for him. Uh, I'm not going to get into commenting on the relationship between uh, European member states, other European member states and the European Commission. The crucial thing for us is it was in our national interest to balance our books and get out of a bailout programme. And we now have the Irish economy to a point because of the sacrifices of the Irish people and the decisions of the last government where we're out of a bailout programme. And what we're now looking to do is put as much space as is possible between our local economy and the kind of risks of uncertainty that you've called, that you've des- described earlier on. Go back a little to the uh, question of demographics. And we do know yeah. that we had a very large rise in the, in the birth rate at the very height of crisis. What of that assertion by the Fiscal Council that the current plans or the current figures from, emanating from Marion Street do not take account of demographics uh, we, and may be out by six billion? Uh, uh, we, we are absolutely confident that the forecasts that we have in relation to spending uh, uh, deal with uh, demographic pressures and deal with the challenges that they create. But I would say that responding back to demographic um, uh, challenges is still a political choice. So you have a government that has to sit down and see what is happening in our classrooms and see what is happening in our hospitals. And they have to make a choice back how to respond to it. So the demographic pressure is something that is unfolding within our economy, OK? But it is a pressure that brings great opportunity as well. Because as you'll be familiar, Arthur, like, and I think I said this earlier on in our interview, you know, the big things that make an effect and how well an economy performs in the future is, do you have a young country? How, what's the age composition of your country? What's happening to the productivity of our country? So the flip side of the pressure paradigm that you and I have been using is the opportunity that it creates. But as we move into the negotiations that I'll be having with government ministers and other departments, we will work to make sure that the changes in demography and the effect that it has on our public services, that we cater for that and we support that in choices that we make in, in spending in current and capital. But it is a choice, but it's something that we're very much aware of within government. You present a, what is a, a very positive case uh, as you set about, and these are early weeks in this uh, in this ministry that you that you have taken on, uh, and yet, I mean, all of this is as a result of an election in which the positive case presented by your party and its former partner in government 
was not fully accepted by the people. Were mistakes made in the election campaign? Yes. Which ones? Which uh, we, We've, um, um, the, the party, I mean, we've already acknowledged that uh, uh, we, we did our best campaigning during the election period. Clearly didn't go as we wished. We have a party review underway in relation to this. And I think one of the um, things that uh, I and my colleagues have focused on is how we can make sure that a, a growing economy delivers the social benefit to people. In your considered political assessment, what was the worst mistake? Uh, look, if, if I get into talking about uh, how I rank different challenges and different things that happened, um, you know, we'll be here for the afternoon, Arthur. And I know you only have a limited period of time available to you, right? But let's also acknowledge that across uh, an election campaign that elements of which we wish we had gone differently, it still got our party to having a number of seats in the Doyle, that we got re-elected to government for the first time in our history, that we saw Fine Gael Taoiseach re-elected for the first time in our history. Does that really matter to me, though, as a, uh, as a party member and as somebody who went forward on the Fine Gael agenda? What matters to be more is that now that we have a government that's capable of delivering what people need, this is going to be a plucky government. This is going to be a government that will work hard within the Oireachtas to deliver wins for the Irish people. But it's going to have to be evaluated in a different way. And for example, your good selves, you know, in here commenting on these things. You're correct, of course, to look at how many votes that the government could win or might lose within the Doyle. Of course that matters. It really matters because we're in the Oireachtas. We're subject to the will of the Oireachtas. But this broad scrutiny... Uh, and it's scrutiny, of course, but there are broader metrics that matter as well. What's the progress that we make in getting two million people back to work? What is the progress that we make in getting more homes built in our country? What is the progress that we make in making sure that we can meet the needs of our health service? And one of the things that I hope will happen, and government have a role to play in that, is that a broader evaluation is put into place regarding how this government can perform and will perform and of course, you know, we have a role to play in relation to that and we will be. I want to wrap up in a couple of minutes, however. Uh, in an earlier interview elsewhere, uh, post-election, you essentially recused yourself from the uh, whatever leadership contest is going to take place whenever Enda Kenny uh, decides that he's going to pass the leadership of the party, pass the mantle on. That remains your position? Yes, it does. Who will you be backing in the contest? Ah, uh, Look, uh, haven't I already clarified I'm not going to be part of it? There's no vacancy at the moment. The Taoiseach has already made clear, which I fully support, uh, his desire to lead the government and the party. He will continue to do so. And when he gets to the point that he no longer wishes to be leader of the party, other people will put their name forward. I'm not going to be one of them, Arthur. But who will you, who will you be backing? But sure, no, no other candidates have declared who they're going to be. And when those other people declare, I'll then make a decision regarding what I'm going to do. But the decision I've already made is that my name will not be one of them. This time round? Well, look, it's a remarkable situation to be in that I've just made clear my own view regarding what I will not be doing for many years to come. And of course, then everybody's asking me to cast my eye up into infinity and see in the time horizon that's longer than I can see, what am I going to do then? For all the bridges that I can see into the future, Arthur, uh, I will not be putting my name forward as a leader, for, uh, as a contender for the leadership of Fine Gael. 
What happens beyond that then, we'll deal with that when we get to it. On a shorter horizon and by way of one final question, you are now the Minister for Public Expenditure. What of those who would say that uh, as Minister for Public Expenditure, you are essentially Finance Minister in waiting for whenever there is a leadership change at the very apex of the party? Again, it just goes back to uh, the earlier dialogue that we had. Michael Noonan is not going anywhere. Uh, I work very closely with him. I work with him on a daily basis and he is a superb Minister for Finance and he will be continuing in that role for a number of years to come and I will be working closely with him. Pascal Donoghue. Arthur, just before we conclude, can I just make a comment if you don't mind because I'm conscious that this is your last day in the Irish Times and if you don't mind me uh, just saying a word on it, I want to wish you the very best of luck in the future. You've had an extraordinary career here in the Irish Times and you're recognised by all of us in political life and business life and economic life as being an exemplary journalist. And I just, while I have an opportunity, I want to wish you and your family the very best of luck in the next phase of your career and you'll be missed here at home. Pascal Donoghue, thank you very much. Uh, How to come back from that? Well, this is indeed my final podcast with the Irish Times. It was always a pleasure. And there is nothing left to say but to wish the listeners well and for me to thank John Casey, who was producer of this podcast, Declan Conlon, who did the preparation, and JJ Vernon, who as ever was uh, excellent on sound. So there it is. Thank you very much indeed.